Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I am proud to announce that Food Pharmacy, one of the biggest health brands in Sweden, is now launching its highly acclaimed blog as well as books and podcasts in English. Food Pharmacy is eager to take its award-winning Scandinavian concept and share it with the rest of the world and to contribute to the fight against the global burden of lifestyle-related diseases. In 2014, Lena Nertby and Mia Klasa started Food Pharmacy, embarking on a long, sometimes meandering, often magical journey towards their goal of improving public health. Along the way, they've spoken with a variety of experts and professionals in various fields related to health and lifestyle. In this podcast series, you'll need a few of them. Be a part of the journey. This is The Food Pharmacy Show. So, Mia. Yes, Lina. It feels a bit weird to speak in English to you. I mean, since we normally speak in Swedish for like, yeah, what is it, like 23 hours daily? At, at least. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it feels a bit awkward, but uh, we have no choice, Lina, do we? No, I guess not. I mean, Considering we need to reach out to people with this life-saving insight that bad eating habits is actually the number one risk factor for getting a serious disease or even dying too early. Yes, because this is what authorities around the world agree on. But yet most people are not even aware that the food we eat today has led to a significant increase in lifestyle-related diseases. And an obesity epidemic. Exactly. I mean, the younger generation of Americans are currently predicted to have shorter lifespans than their parents, primarily due to obesity. I mean, that's crazy. It is. And according to WHO, lifestyle-related diseases account for just over 70%. 70%. I repeat, 70%. Of all deaths globally. And there are now more people who are obese on our planet than who are underweight. Yeah. The rise of obesity is now affecting every continent. Is this getting a bit depressing? You mean this conversation? Yeah, I mean, we were just saying everything that's bad, but I mean, there is one good thing about this also, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it is. It's that it's so extremely easy to take small steps to change this development. I see what you mean, Lina, but I think it's okay to be a bit depressing, to be honest. I mean, if you are going to dig into lifestyle changes, you ought to know why, right? 
Yeah. Why you should stop drinking soda or eating crisps every day, for example. You need to know that it's dangerous for your health, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you won't stop. Exactly. I mean, you and I both have a, a past where we were drinking sodas and having crisps and candy on an everyday basis. Every single day. And if... Uh, I had candy for, for dinner. Yeah. And I had my crisps. early twenties. <laughs> I had crisps for dinner. So, I mean, and if if we wouldn't have run into a professor mm. who, who taught us actually that uh, the food we were eating were slowly killing us, we would never have stopped. No, having candy and crisps for dinner. Yeah, yeah. So let's just agree: it is time for us to wake up before it's too late. We are not talking about big or hard changes here. Small steps in the right direction will do miracles to our health. Yes, I mean, this is true and you are absolutely so right. Thank you very much, Lina. You're welcome. I mean, and this is also the very reason why you and I now sit here and feel a bit awkward speaking English to each other. Yes, what a great reason to speak Swinglish. Is that a term in English? I don't know. It's like Swedish plus English makes Swinglish. I don't know. It is time for the world to become Newtent hunters, no matter what it takes from us. That's for sure. Yeah, that is for sure. And since the listeners don't really know us yet, mm-hmm. I think that we should stress what we are very well known for here. In mm. the dark country up in north. Being very funny, charming, beautiful. No, I'm just kidding. Enjoy and do not be too harsh on yourself. That is the most important lesson of all. Yes, for sure. Creating healthy eating habits. It's not about banning anything. I will take this one more time now a bit slower because this is the key. Creating healthy eating habits. It's not about banning anything, but about starting a journey where you start to be kind to yourself. Yes, and we often say you have two homes, your body and our planet. And please be sure to give them all the love they deserve. today's podcast, we will talk to Dr. Michael Mosley. And he, he is one of Britain's most well-known doctors. And Michael Mosley is also a science presenter, journalist and executive producer, well-known from BBC. And Michael Mosley is also the author of the international best-selling books, The Clever Guts Diet. Great book. The Fast Diet. Even a greater book. Fast Exercise. Marvellous. And The Eight-Week Blood Sugar Diet. Such a brilliant book. And Michael Mosley is also our new BFF. (laughs) He truly is. I think it's very interesting to listen to your background since uh, you are uh, a doctor. Yes. And uh, to me, you are 
one of the greatest person when it comes to trying to influence people to a better health by food. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that is my mission in life now. But it wasn't always my mission in life. No. It's relatively recent, I have to say. Yeah. My conversion. Yeah. So would you mind tell us a bit about your journey and how you became so uh, interested in food and the relation with food and health? Sure. So I um, did my medical training in London at the Royal Free Hospital and uh, we learned almost nothing about food there. Mm. We learned a huge amount about anatomy, pharmacology and um, physiology and things like that. But we were taught almost nothing about the impact of food on health. Maybe one lecture um, during the five years that I was doing my medical training. And that is quite typical. Mm. My oldest son, who is now a junior doctor, uh, he has recently qualified and uh, he again learned almost nothing. So mm. this is true in the UK. I know it's true in America and also in Australia. And I suspect it is probably true in Sweden as well. You're right. The doctors are taught about how to give drugs, but not how to make people better through diet, food and things like that. Mm. So that was kind of my training. Um, I later went and joined the BBC and I started to make programs about health and things like that. But I never really was interested in food until 2012, when I discovered that I had type 2 diabetes, a mm. blood test, and my GP said, um, that's fine, we can start your medication. But um, my father had developed diabetes at about that age. Um, I was in my mid-50s then, I'm now 62, and uh, he had followed his doctor's advice, he had taken more and more medication, and then he died at the age of 74 from complications of diabetes, which included uh, dementia, and heart disease and cancer. Mm -hmm. So that didn't sound like a good way to go. Mm. And so I decided to see if there was something else I could do. And that's when I first heard about intermittent fasting. And that's really what triggered all the interest that I've had over the last uh, seven years in which I have uh, obsessively become interested <laughs> in uh, dieting, intermittent fasting and the impact of food. Mm. You have written a lot of uh, many books about this. Absolutely. So the book which kind of launched my career in publishing, if you like, was called The Fast Diet in the UK and also known as The 5-2 Diet. And uh, we sold well over because I wrote it with a journalist called Mimi Spencer because I had no idea how to write a book, let alone a diet book. And I wanted to tell people about the fact that I had um, discovered intermittent fasting. I had lost around nine kilos, and that was enough to put my blood sugars back to normal, which is where they have stayed ever since. Mm. Uh, but I didn't know how to write about this. I knew how to make That's a television incredible. program. Mm. Mm. And um, so this journalist from The Times contacted me and she said, look, if you're not going to write a book, I will. Mm. Um, so she found the publisher and she organized the whole thing. Mm. And otherwise, you know, I'm not sure I would have got round to writing it. Mm. Uh, so we wrote the book, became an international bestseller, um, sold in 40 countries. And that was uh, seven years ago. And I think a lot of people found it um, uh, life-changing. Indeed, mm. I know they found it life-changing. Yeah. And um, since then, I've written a number of other books, including a book on the gut, 
which mm. I know is one of your passions. Mm. I've um, read that book. Indeed, clever guts. Mm. Mm. We and took everything from it. <laughs> yeah. I wrote. And you <laughs> find it in our book. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we're probably talking to the same scientists. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but the new book is a bringing together of all the things that I've learned over the last seven years. Because one of the great things is that I get to talk to a huge number of specialists around the world, and they like to talk to me about this stuff. So uh, this is called, um, in the UK, it is called the Fast 800. Um, in Sweden, it is called the Moseley Method. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the idea there is you start off with rapid weight loss, which mm. is 800 calories a day, every day, for up to eight weeks. And then you switch to what I call the 5-2, where you do it two days a week and mm. eat healthily the other five days. And then you switch over to kind of healthy eating um, the rest of the time or most of the time if you can. So it combines rapid weight loss at the beginning with intermittent fasting and then uh, with um, eating what I would largely describe as a Mediterranean-style diet because that is without doubt the healthiest diet both for your brain, your body, and also for your gut, for mm. your lovely microbes that we love so much. Mm. And uh, interestingly, you know, Sweden... Uh, I asked um, somebody at the WHO uh, what um, country was closest in Europe to eating the Mediterranean diet, and he said it's Sweden. Mm. It's Even no closer than the uh, Medi- Mediterranean sadly, area. Absolutely. Mm. Sadly, <laughs> they've abandoned it. Yeah. So countries like Greece and Italy in particular, uh, they have very high rates of obesity, particularly in children, and mm. that's because they have abandoned their heritage. They have switched over to a junk American diet. So, yes, it turns out that the Swedes are the closest. Mm. We in the UK are obviously the fattest people in Europe. Eh? Yeah, I know. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but and you, you lot are quite relatively slim and healthy, though obviously you have problems as well. Actually, but, do you know that every second Swede is uh, overweight? Uh, yeah, overweight. Yes. But that's not as bad as us. So for you, it's about 50%. Mm. For us, it's about 68% of people oh are God. overweight or obese. And childhood is even worse. Oh. So uh, things will get much, much worse before they get any better, is what I can say. Mm. And so in the UK, dementia is now the number one cause of death. In um, Sweden, it is number two. But you also have high and rocketing rates of type 2 diabetes and things like that. Mm. So you are much better off than us. But mm-hmm. not perfect, mm-hmm. and but we're going down the same route. You're heading down the same mm. route because as you get older and sicker and things like that, mm. you also consume and quite a lot of antibiotics, mm. uh, uh, which are obviously bad for your gut bacteria. You have, you know, not a huge amount, but uh, you also have quite a lot of cesarean sections, which are not terribly mm. good either. Mm. And um, the only thing I would say about the Nordic diet, which is pretty good, and is the uh, is that you probably eat too many potatoes. Mm. And a little bit too much bread. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, the Nordic diet is pretty good. And it's We very, love our potatoes. You but love, you can have the potato you can cold. Really. Indeed. And that's better. Yeah. They're, they're more resistant starch, exactly, mm-hmm. if you have them cold. And you can alternatively heat them up and they become even more resistant yeah. starch. That's and, so uh, good. It's magic. It's magic. <laughs> and uh, we discovered that on Trust Me, I'm a Doctor mm-hmm. uh, because nobody, when we did the experiment, had ever done it. We did it with pasta. Mm-hmm. Uh, cooked cooled and then reheated mm. and everyone said when you reheat it it will go back to how it was mm. in fact it became more resistant it mm. became more Absolutely. like fiber mm. more resistant starch and mm. then other people discovered you do that with potatoes you do that with rice you can also do it with bread mm. so if you keep the bread in the freezer and then stick it in the toaster uh, you will get lower blood sugar spikes than mm. if you kind of just take it out of the bread bin and you're also less likely to throw it away because mm. bread is the number one thing that people throw away mm. when it gets moldy bread mm. and coffee 
guess. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure coffee goes off quite as fast. Yeah, okay. uh, but yeah, no, so I have become absolutely obsessed mm-hmm. uh, by the impact of food and also on mood, which mm-hmm. is the new thing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So there is quite a lot of really interesting research coming out of Australia now. I spend a lot of time in Australia talking to Australian scientists yeah. mm-hmm. about the impact of the Mediterranean diet. Mm. on anxiety, depression, and things like that. Mm. Mm. And what is amazing to me is how long it has taken for scientists to actually look at this. Because mm. in almost every area you look at, you go, wow, this stuff has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Mm. So things like intermittent fasting, for example, the idea of fasting, all the great religions have embraced that. Mm. Uh, there's a thing called time-restricted eating, which I also write about, where you, you know, you try and extend your overnight fast and do something like sixteen eight or fourteen ten, and the Buddha was recommending that, mm. uh, you know, mm. three thousand years ago. Yeah. he just mm. told his followers to stop eating after lunch. Our day mm. after. Um, mm. So uh, all sorts of things go on, and yet it takes science takes a while to catch up yeah and it's been really obvious to people like plato you name it that what you eat has a profound effect Mm. on your mood and things like that and yet Mm. um the research is only just starting Mm. on that and that's what's kind of so weird Mm. Uh, we were talking about overweight and obesity we have so many questions for you so i hope we will um, stay here forever yeah <laughs> but talking about overweight and obesity today it's like you said is spreading among all ages and increasing rapidly but i mean in sweden as a health blogger and writing about health both me and i feel it's it's a very difficult issue to talk about because it feels like you always step on someone's toes. Yes. And uh, on the front page of your uh, book, it says um, lose weight. Yep. Have you had any uh, negative reactions uh, for talking about losing weight so openly? Uh, Surprisingly less than I thought I would. I assumed, certainly when I wrote the first book, I assumed that lots of doctors would attack me and Mm. tell me that intermittent fasting was a stupid, crazy idea. Some did, Mm. but very few did. Uh, and uh, again, there were attacks from people saying it was terrible for women. Mm. Uh, this was never based on anything apart from some studies on female rats. Mm. Uh, but that went away again. Mm. I have been in quite vigorous debates mm. uh, with people who argue uh, that uh, this is a feminist issue, that mm. we are we shouldn't be fat shaming, mm. uh, that being overweight can be healthy, mm. and that it is wrong to encourage people to diet because we know that diets don't work. So Mm. I've had all these arguments. Mm. The thing I would say is the reason I encourage people to get down to what I would describe as a healthy weight Mm. is because the opposite is being an unhealthy weight. Mm. And uh, it is a fantasy to believe that you can be obese or hugely overweight and not suffer the consequences. Mm. There are some people, very, very few, Mm. who can get away with being significantly overweight. But even they are likely to develop arthritis in their joints. Mm. We know that being obese is linked to a massively increased risk of diabetes, dementia, breast cancer, you name it. Mm. The list is long. Mm. And then the question is, can you do anything about it? Mm. And I think the evidence is very strong that you can. Mm. That actually, if you do the right sort of a diet, people can lose the weight and keep it off. Mm. So I was talking to Professor Susan Jebb at Oxford University, Mm. who is a passionate advocate of the right sort of diets. Mm. She is one of the world's foremost specialists in weight loss. And she said the tragedy is that we know how to help people lose weight and keep it off. Mm. 
but this information is not uh, shared by doctors and it certainly isn't available to um, the wider public. Why not, do you think? uh, Because uh, people stick to old traditional ideas. So, for example, one of the central ideas at the heart of my book Mm. is something that I'm sure most Swedish dietitians will throw up their arms and say, this is terrible, Mm. and that is the idea of going for rapid weight loss. Mm. Now, rapid weight loss, we've been told endlessly you should lose weight slowly and steadily. Mm. That is not what the weight loss specialists say. That Mm. is not what the research shows. But nonetheless, there is a sort of huge block, if you like, Mm. And there are some brilliant dietitians out there, and there are some who just frankly utterly refuse to look at the evidence. Mm. So uh, my wife is a GP. She's a doctor. Mm. She encounters a lot of uh, opposition, not from fellow doctors, not from patients, but largely from dietitians who tell Mm. her that what she's doing is wrong. And she says, but I'm getting people off insulin. I'm getting them off all sorts of drugs. And they say, oh, but this is dangerous. She points at massive studies that have been done in the UK, Australia and the US. And they just don't read the stuff. Mm. They have this idea, low-fat diet, eat lots of small meals across the day, slow and steady. And it's just all garbage. Mm. And that gets me really quite cross. Mm. And if people are going to argue studies with me, I am very happy to do that. I'm very happy to engage at that level. Mm. Uh, But just people telling me that this is wrong because I'm a dietitian, and therefore that means I know what I'm talking about and you don't know, that Mm. really, I find that difficult. But to be honest, it doesn't happen a lot. Mm. I get a lot of great people, dietitians or whatever, who say this is really interesting Mm. and have you thought about that? And so uh, most of my interactions have been unbelievably positive, I can say. Mm, Um, And that is fabulous. And Mm. um, Claire says, as a doctor, uh, she expected more opposition from her colleagues, but actually they want to learn more. So Mm. she goes and gives talks, a lot of talks to doctors. And I think there is a mood now which basically goes, particularly amongst patients, we don't just want to take more and more medication. Mm. The belief has always been uh, patients won't do it. Patients can't be bothered to lose weight. They won't stick to it. They would much rather take pills. So let's not do anything about it. Mm. And in the UK, uh, you know, my wife sees patients who haven't, no one's bothered to talk to them about it. No one's bothered to weigh them. Mm. Uh, Professor Jeb says that the number one thing a doctor should do is get the patient to stand on the scales. Mm. before they even come into the thing. Yeah. Mm. and um, it's, like, uh, it's like it was with smoking before. If you came to a doctor and you had a problem, the first question they asked was if you were a smoker or not. And if you were, they always said, then you should stop smoking. Now the smoke rate has gone down uh, tremendously in Sweden. But it should be the same with, uh, with weight. Absolutely. And the studies show the doctors don't like talking about weight with their patients because they assume they would be embarrassed. Yes. Mm. But the reality is that 95% of patients in surveys say they are very happy to talk about weight. Mm. The reason they don't is mm. because the doctor doesn't bring it up mm. or because the doctor is overweight and fat themselves, mm. so they don't mm. trust them, or because they don't think the doctor has anything useful to tell them. Mm. Okay. And uh, those may all well be very <laughs> valid criticisms. Yeah. But in a way, we got to get it out there And I completely sympathize with the view which says that fat shaming is terrible Mm. and the obsessing about weight can be counterproductive. Mm. Unfortunately, it is a physical fact, if you like. We Mm. did not evolve to be carrying around as much weight as we do, as much fat. We talk about weight, we really mean fat. Mm. And it is the fat, uh, which is just 
it doesn't just sit there passively. It produces these inflammatory signals and things like that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, I completely sympathize with the point of view which says, you know, there's a toxic, you know, view about diets out there and that too many terrible diets are being promoted. But that doesn't mean that all weight loss strategies are complete and utter waste of time. Mm. Nor is it true. There are lots of made-up statistics. One of my favorite made-up ones is that 95% of diets fail. Mm. 95 are bad, bad diets fail, yeah. but there is a plethora of data which shows you that if you go on a good diet, uh, you that can lead to sustained weight loss and improvements in your health decades later. Mm. So there is a council of despair which basically goes, our patients are all fat and stupid, therefore why bother spending any time talking to them mm. when we can give them pills? Mm. Plus, it is a lot easier to give them pills. Mm. So if you are an uh, GP in the UK and you have eight minutes for consultation it is much much easier to give somebody an antidepressant or give them metformin or some other drug than to actually deal with the underlying condition because that But is I going mean, to now, take longer Now when we get more and more proof that uh, that diet is, is vital yes. in everything from depression and actually all the lifestyle related diseases that we are suffering from in our society today how long do you Take, uh, think it would take until we include diet in the medical uh, in the medical school and uh, in the in the medical work. I think that the pressure is going to come from the bottom. I mm. talk to a lot of medical students, and in some medical schools in the UK, Cambridge, Oxford, Bristol, I know that there is a kind of movement which has come from the medical students saying we want to learn this stuff, we need to know this stuff. That's it is not great. good enough. Mm. So that seems to be driving change. Mm. So I am actually feeling relatively optimistic about it. I don't mm -hmm. think it's going to happen fast. I would be fascinated to know what's going on in Sweden from mm. that point of view. I would be fascinated as well to know what gets taught. Mm. Uh, but uh, I am feeling optimistic mm. that uh, television programs like the ones I make, the books I write, podcasts like this one, they're all kind of getting out there mm. and they're reaching people and it is no longer possible to just dismiss it as sort of faddy hokum mm. and things like that. that mm. There's clearly a body of evidence um, that needs to be addressed. So uh, I'm feeling at this moment in time optimistic. Maybe tomorrow I'll feel more pessimistic. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Talking about change and uh, and uh, scientific uh, evidence, you say that uh, the how do you call it full fat diet, diet and yes. half fat diet or what do you say semi skimmed semi skimmed so this diet. is around the debate think, around dairy yeah you think that the uh, guidelines for for uh, this should be changed i think that certainly the guidelines which say to you uh, you would be better off eating skimmed yogurt or skimmed milk i think they should be relaxed in the sense that we have almost no evidence that mm. skimmed is better than full fat i don't you know if you like skimmed great Mm. I don't think there is a lot of evidence that it's better for you, but I certainly don't think there's any evidence it's worse for you either. So mm. the Australian Heart uh, Foundation, which is a big charity, uh, very recently changed their guidelines mm. uh, that there is a mounting body of evidence which suggests that full-fat dairy, at least some types of dairy like milk, like yogurt and possibly cheese, uh, the, they are associated with reduced risk of putting on weight and reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite difficult to do the studies, but certainly there is no good evidence that mm-hmm. um, skimmed versions are any healthier and some evidence that they are less healthy. Mm-hmm. So I also prefer the taste, frankly. Mm-hmm. I would much Me rather... Me too. Me too. Absolutely. So on the basis... And you get, you get full in a nice full. way, so you don't need Absolutely. to eat. And mm-hmm. the thing is that when you take things like skimmed milk, what happens is they remove all the fat-soluble vitamins, mm-hmm. and that means that the vitamins have to be re-injected back in, and they normally come from some factory in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is turning a wholesome food into a processed food, yeah. mm-hmm. and I am not at all convinced that mm-hmm. this is going to be good either for your gut or any other part of you. And as mm-hmm. you say, uh, if you have full-fat dairy, then uh, it's just going to keep you fuller for longer. Mm. I think it depends on the type of dairy. So I think the benefits are clearest with yogurt and mm. then probably with milk, but um, not so sure. And cheese, mm, I like cheese, but again, not so sure. Mm. Uh, but certainly um, I'm very happy to consume full mm. fat yogurt. Do you think that the guidelines will change? Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. I think they will. I think they will take time. I think we're beginning to see because the evidence is mounting and mounting and people are going to realize the whole idea that saturated fat is bad for you uh, as a, just a general rule. Mm. I think there have been so many studies recently mm. which show that it depends on the type of saturated fat. Mm. And mm. we, again, on Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, we did an experiment with Cambridge University yeah. uh, where we looked at people consuming... We asked 100 people, and we randomly allocated them to consuming a tablespoon of coconut oil, butter, or olive oil a day. Mm. And uh, the scientists predicted that the coconut oil would you know, increase their bad cholesterol. But it turned out not to be true, that it was actually the most beneficial, mm-hmm. uh, in, certainly in this short-term study. Mm-hmm. And they published it in the British Medical Journal, and the professor said she was absolutely gobsmacked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was the exact opposite of what she predicted. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she, was, she said the data is strong, we did the study, uh, I'm going to publish. Mm-hmm. So they did, and it mm-hmm. caused an interesting furore. Mm-hmm. But again, what it shows you is that just because something is a saturated fat, Uh, and coconut oil is something like 95% mm. does not mean it's going to do what you think it's going to do no. the human body is wonderful and complicated yeah. and uh, you know uh, all these sort of assumptions need to be tested yeah. mm. and the problem is there's not a lot of money available for the sort of research you need to do mm. on the different types of food mm. because unlike pharmaceutical products and things like that mm. there's no big vested interest mm. um, likely to be driving any of these things This is what we've been talking about oh. a lot. In our first book that uh, you have there, we talk also about uh, intermittent fasting and calorie restriction. 
And uh, I was listening to, uh, uh, because there's always um, uh, these experts who are very uh, scared for uh, changing the way uh, of eating. You should just stick to the normal and you shouldn't be too concerned about uh, health uh, diets and things like that. And... um, And I read that uh, the criticism against intermittent fasting was that it's not a natural um, mood for your body. So it creates a stress for the body and the mind. And therefore it is unhealthy rather than healthy. What do you say about that? Well, it's actually a very natural. It's kind of how we evolved. We evolved in a period of feast and famine. Our remote ancestors, you know, living uh, 20,000 years ago, they did not have breakfast, lunch and supper all the time. And, uh, you know, they basically lived when they got food, they ate lots of it. And then there were long periods of time when they didn't. And that's why we are we evolved with two fuel systems. We evolved to run on sugar, but also on fat so that we have the fat to fall back on uh, when we're out of the sugar. So the average Swede could comfortably live on their body fat until Christmas. Mm. Uh, you know, you are not short of fuel. Mm. You have lots and lots of fuel. It's how you access it. And mm. What we want to do is burn fat. But mm. while you have lots of sugar in your system, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But your body is like having money in your pocket or money in the bank. Mm. Uh, you only get money into the bank when you've got rid of this stuff. Whereas if yeah. you're going all the time to the cash point and getting money and put it in your pocket, you don't need to bother. Mm. So the same is true of the body. Mm. So I would say, first of all, evolutionary, complete and utter nonsense. Mm. Uh, Basically, we evolved for feast and famine. Mm. Uh, The second thing is the idea that it's stressful. Yes, it is. The whole point is that stress, the right types of stress are really good for you. Mm. There's a theory in medicine called hormesis, which basically says that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Mm. Exercise is really stressful. When you go out for a run, you tear muscle, you rip, you do damage. But it is the period of rest afterwards which leads to repair. Mm. And exactly the same is true of intermittent fasting. While you are doing it, it is stressful. Mm. But it is when you stop doing it, that an awful lot of repair gets triggered. Mm. And we know, for example, that a process called autophagy kicks in after about 12 hours without food. And autophagy is when your body starts to do the cleaning up. You know, it does the housekeeping. Mm. So when you're busy, 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 uh, you're eating all the time, your body has no time to do repairs. Mm. It only gets on with repair, particularly repair to the gut, when you haven't got food in your system. Now, your gut has a tremendous pounding. It does huge amounts of damage, but it can only get on with it in that period overnight when you're not eating. And so if you're just cramming calories in all the time, but the same is true of other systems in your body. And that is why stress is good. And the idea that you should not stress your body by having lots of small meals is terrible. Mm. It's the intimate nature of it that matters. And I said it's exactly the same as exercise. Exercise, if you just walk very slowly all the time and sit down a lot and never get stressed, strangely enough, this does not make you healthier. It makes you much, much less healthy. Mm. And that's why you need to go for sprints, why you need to get on a bicycle and sprint off, get your heart rate up. Mm. It is not enough to walk. You also need to walk fast. Mm. And if you can, you need to run. And if you can, you need to sprint. Mm. And you can do press-ups. Press-ups are really painful. Mm. I do 30 press-ups, maybe 40 press-ups every morning. It is never 
ever easy. On your knees or on your feet? On my feet. I oh do my. proper grown-up <laughs> press-ups, exactly. Oh my gosh. And we have uh, something I never to enjoy it, and <laughs> I always feel a bit sore afterwards. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but that's fine, yeah. because it's all about the repair. Mm. It's all about basically triggering these things. So what I would say to these people is look at the studies mm. and tell me, and there are a number of long-term studies, um, I can show you evidence that mm. it is highly beneficial. You show me any evidence that mm. it is harmful. Mm. Uh, so, um, uh, talking about uh, intermittent fasting, uh, I found it very interesting. Uh, uh, you talked about intermittent fasting and epigenetics yes. uh, this morning. And uh, both me and I, we have uh, breast cancer right. in our family and we have had uh, family members that died uh, from a young age from breast cancer. And you said that it was a study that showed a decrease of 68% or something of uh, yes, breast cancer? Yes, that was basically the study where they looked at the impact of the Mediterranean diet, and particularly one rich in um, extra virgin olive oil. Mm. And in that study, the PREDIMED study, which is a massive study of 7,400 Spaniards, they found uh, a diet which was particularly rich in uh, extra virgin olive oil. Mm. Uh, they were the group who had a 68% reduction in breast cancer risk compared to another group who are on a low-fat diet. Mm. The low-fat diet was always supposed to be the good thing for breast cancer, mm. but none of the studies that have been done have ever demonstrated that. So mm. for breast cancer risk, the things we know that are important are obviously if you have significant risk. Screening, there are also you know, ambiguities about screening. Mm. Keeping to a decent weight is hugely important because being overweight or obese massively raises your risk. Mm. Uh, checking your blood sugar levels because mm. having high levels of insulin mm. is a major driver of breast cancer risk. Why is that so? Because insulin basically promotes cell turnover. Mm-hmm. It's basically... So then it's cancer risk. All over. It's oh, not yeah. only breast. Yeah, yeah then I be, understand. It seems yeah. to be clearest yeah. for breast cancer. I don't know why. Maybe there's a kind of faster turnover, but that's where most of the research has been done. Mm. So there have been a couple of big studies looking at 5.2. One was done some years ago in 135 women who were at risk of breast cancer, they had a family history, and they showed with that group they lost more fat than those on a standard diet, mm-hmm. with six kilos. Uh, but they also saw improvements in things like their insulin levels, much bigger, significant changes, uh, which they didn't see in the other group. Mm-hmm. And that was good. And then the same researchers recently looked at, uh, they did biopsies in the breasts of women, Mm. who did a month on the 5-2 diet. That's pretty brave. Mm. And they saw epigenetic changes. They saw changes in the DNA, particularly uh, the DNA um, associated or the genes that are linked with increased breast cancer risk. They were switched off and altered Mm. uh, by doing the 5-2 diet. So it doesn't show that it's going to prevent breast cancer, but it does. It's very interesting. Mm. And beyond that, there's this thing called time-restricted eating. Mm. And again, I write in the book there about breast cancer risk Mm. because... No one has done a formal study, but they did do a, looked back at some data. There was a big, big study done in America where they got a large number of women and put them on a, essentially on a low-fat diet and followed them for seven or eight years. Turned out low-fat diet made no difference whatsoever. Mm. But what they did is they looked back, because they'd all kept diaries, and so they were able to quantify how long an overnight fast had they had. And the women who basically had the longest overnight fast, they were massively reduced risk of either developing breast cancer or developing recurrences. Mm. 
So that was a very interesting way of repurposing the data from mm. another big trial, which you would never afford to do again because mm. it was just too big. Mm. But um, again, that is certainly suggestive that there are things you can do. But I think probably the single thing you can do is um, essentially uh, to keep to a healthy weight, to get your BMI down below 25. Mm. And that is one of the best. You both look slim, so I'm sure you're not at risk. But um you know, as you know, breast cancer is a very random thing as well. Mm. Yes, it is. Um, you also talked about uh, dementia being the second um, leading cause of death in uh, Sweden. Yes, and, and the, the number one in, cause in the UK. Yeah. yeah. And um, I remember a few years ago we wrote about uh, Alzheimer's uh, called type diabetes type 3 yes. by researchers yes, right. and uh, it was so provoking for many people to re- read this and it was also talking about the fat shame this was the same it's like uh, telling people felt that but I didn't want to get sick uh, and we just wanted to you know inform about this uh, this new research and um, and you say in uh, in your book that uh, intermittent fasting could actually help prevent dementia yes yeah. certainly the the evidence is very very strong in animals and the human trials are currently underway mm. they're due to publish in the next few months mm. um, where they got a bunch of people who were at risk of developing dementia cognitive decline uh, they had uh, what they're known as insulin resistant so mm. insulin resistance is when your body doesn't respond terribly well to the insulin your body is producing. Mm. So this is the first stage towards diabetes. Mm. You're not necessarily yet diabetic. You can be insulin resistant in your body, but also in your brain. Mm. And if you have insulin resistance in the brain, then this is a very, very powerful predictor that you will go on to develop dementia. Mm. So what they did is they took a group of people, they put them on the 5-2 diet, and another group randomly allocated to standard And they've been following them now for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And they've been doing lumbar punctures. This is when they stick a needle into your spine and they suck out the fluid so they can look at the fluid which bathes your brain to see the impact the the diet is having on brain hormones like one called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like a fertilizer for the brain. And we know that that uh, release of that substance is encouraged by intermittent fasting and by exercise. Mm. Also, interestingly enough, by ketosis. Mm. Um, so BDNF seems to be a key chemical. It's also um, hormone. It's also very strongly linked. Uh, it has a very powerful antidepressant effect. Mm. So I will be really interested when that comes out because obviously we have no treatment for depression. I mean, we have no de- treatment for dementia at all, Alzheimer's. Once you got it, there's nothing that will stop it progressing. Mm. And the changes begin in your 40s and 50s. Mm. So any changes you're going to do, do them now. Yeah, uh, okay. because it becomes harder and harder <laughs> as you get older and older. Uh, but and it is very much about um, again, it's about kind of weight. And as you say, it's a very hard thing to tell people that mm. if you have type two diabetes, you have somewhere between two and three times the risk of developing dementia, even mm. on medication. Uh, now, it's difficult, particularly if there's nothing very much you can do about it, but you can mm. because if you lose weight, if you do, you know, the 500 diet, if you do other things, you can bring your blood sugars down and you can massively reduce, or at least we believe, we don't know because no one's done the studies properly, but that should massively decrease the risk that you will develop dementia because we know that doing these fasting diets uh, increases your insulin sensitivity 
So you become less insulin resistant, mm. and that means that uh, you get less insulin resistance in the brain. And as I said, that is one of the strongest predictors uh, that you will develop dementia. But it's scary stuff mm. because. But I firmly believe you should tell people. Yeah, because of course. Yeah, we do too. If I, mm. you know, my wife's a doctor. Mm. You know, she's a GP. She sees patients. If she says the way she talks them about it, particularly the. The moments they want to change mm. are when something has happened. So they've mm. just learnt they're type 2 diabetic. They've just mm. learnt they're going to start on insulin. They've just had a heart attack. Mm. It might be something like that. Mm. And this is the moment where she says to them, look, there are two things you can go. I can start your medication. Unfortunately, it will not halt the prog progress of th this disease. This disease will progress. Mm. And you will develop these other complications. Mm. Mm. Or you can try this. Mm. Uh, it's not for everyone. It's not going to work for everyone, but do you want to give it a go? Mm -hmm. And not everyone says yes, but 90% of them say yeah. yes. Yeah. And most of them do really, really well on it. And then they feel really proud of themselves mm. because they have done it. Mm. It's not the doctor giving the pill. They have you know, managed to get hold of their life again. And she yeah. said it's been fantastic because mm. she's been a doctor for 30 years. And this is the most rewarding period of her life. Mm. Her professional life mm. is being able to dispense advice, be able to help people lose weight. Mm. But there is no encouragement in the system at all to do this. Mm. So she has to do it in her spare time because she's not paid to do that. In fact, no. she is discouraged. The way the health service is structured mm. in the UK mm. is you get paid to put people on drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, you get, you know, particularly in her practice, which is linked to a pharmacy, if you prescribe drugs, then you get a share of the money back. Mm. And so, so uh, that's say, what you call uh, I don't get the word in Swedish now but it's a word for this and it's uh, like corruption almost. Well, it's, mm. it's, it's how the system is designed it's not yeah. corruption because they're only doing what the system allows them to do yes. and there are perverse incentives there is nothing in the system which uh, would encourage her to help her patients lose weight by giving them health advice mm. uh, there is nothing in it for her at all except for grief You know, it takes time also because uh, these are not standard. Some of the advice is not yet standard. Mm. There is the risk that if something goes wrong, um, she will be struck off mm. because the defense is always, I'm only doing what other doctors would do. Yeah. But if you're not doing what other doctors would do, mm. then you're in a difficult position. Mm. So fortunately, I'm not practicing medicine anymore. That mm. makes it easier for me. Yeah. She still is. That mm. makes her quite vulnerable. We've been talking a lot about this, why uh, why uh, doctors in Sweden, there are different uh, types of like autoimmune diseases and lifestyle related diseases. And the doctors, they just tell their patients that there are these medicines and there's nothing you can do yourself to yes. improve the condition. And this, they say, even though they must be very aware of all these um, uh, people who actually got off drugs and got a better condition while changing their food. And we just wonder, is wouldn't it be easier just to say that we have no studies that uh, we can promise you that you will get rid of this condition, but it has worked for many individuals to eat like this. Yes. You can try it. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Isn't that strange? That seems like a very rational and reasonable thing to do, so I don't know why. <laughs> do you know why they don't? <laughs> I think uh, there is a lack of time, tiredness, skepticism, you know, uh, and they just find it easier to go take this. Mm. And they think that's all the patients want. Mm. So there is also even, you know, people who are in the field, they're not aware of some of the other research in the field. Mm. And that's why you need to do these really big studies, like mm. the one that Professor Taylor did showing the benefits of the Fast 800 for people who have type 2 diabetes. He did big numbers, mm. but that was funded by a diabetes charity. This is what I mean. Who should fund these studies? Because This, uh, this study no... cost 10 million euros, mm. took four years, and it was funded by a diabetes charity. Mm. Uh, because he couldn't get money from anyone else. Mm-hmm. Government wasn't going to give him money. Pharmaceutical company obviously wasn't going to give him any money. Mm. So it's kind of who's got the money. Mm. And that's the problem. And that's the pharmaceuticals. Oh, I see. And that's yeah. kind of where the training is and why it's so much easier. But as mm. I said, I think there is pushback against that at the moment. Mm. And uh, some doctors are more enthusiastic about it than others. Mm. Talking about diabetes type 2, uh, you claim that the right way to eat could make diabetes type 2 reversible mm-hmm. in the majority of the cases yep. and that actually the medicine that that is out now yep. doesn't cure but only slow down the the process. Yes. Yeah. So if you talk to most uh, or certainly a lot of diabetes specialists until recently, they will tell you that diabetes is an incurable disease, that it is progressive that in most patients it will steadily get worse, that you will have to put them on more and more medication, and many will end up injecting insulin. Mm. So that was the basis back in 2014 when Professor Taylor did his study, and he demonstrated very convincingly that if you lose enough weight, about 10% of your body weight, uh, then uh, in the majority of cases people are able to come off all medication and their blood sugars return to normal, like me. Mm. So I lost 10% of my body weight, my blood sugars went back to normal. Seven years ago, I have been absolutely fine ever since. Mm. So that is anecdotal, but he's done the big studies that have demonstrated it. Mm. So people, first of all, said patients won't do it. If they do do it, it won't work. And now they're saying, well, you've only done it for two years. Mm. But the reality is we know from uh, some of the surgery which was done, gastric band surgery, which was done to help people who are hugely overweight, but it had the consequence of reversing the diabetes, that 20, 25 years later, as long as they kept off the weight, their diabetes stayed away. In 98% of people with prediabetes, it went away and stayed away forever. Mm -hmm. In the vast majority of people with diabetes, it went away and stayed away forever. Mm -hmm. So Taylor would say, as long as you can keep the fat out of your liver and your pancreas. Mm. There is no reason why those two organs should collapse. Mm. So it's a bit like cancer in that we don't generally talk about cures for cancer. We talk about it being in remission uh, until enough years have gone by. Mm. So uh, I would regard it, he would say, in remission. Because mm. until you have been 5, 10, 20 years, you don't know. But I can. we also know that the longer you are free of diabetes, uh, the less... Uh, the bad consequences. So the really scary stuff is the people who develop type 2 diabetes in their 30s and 40s, because for them, the consequences are going to be absolutely mm. dreadful. Mm. And unfortunately, the medication doesn't really have much of an impact. It helps reduce your blood sugar levels and your HbA1c and some of the other markers. But whether it actually reduces your risk of amputation, of going blind, um, of having heart attack, we don't know. Mm. because the studies are not clear. Mm. 
Mm. It, uh, if you actually look at the data now, it says can, may, perhaps. It used to say does, mm. uh, but they changed their view because the studies don't actually support that. Mm. What's happening now is there are more modern drugs and they are much more expensive. And the latest versions, for example, will make your kidneys work harder to piss out the sugar. Mm. Uh, and that means patients feel they can eat a donut with one hand and yeah. eat the pill with the other hand. Yeah. And they think they're going to be fine. Mm. And they're not going to be fine. No. Mm. And that's what Claire says to them. You're not actually treating the underlying disease. Mm. The disease is caused by too much fat in your liver and your pancreas. Mm. So just getting rid of the sugar from your system by getting people to urinate it out. Mm isn't going to do anything, mm. but it will lead to many more infections mm. in your, you know, your bladder mm. and things like that. And we know those are the side effects. Mm. So um, I'm not telling people to come off their medication or anything like that, but I do suggest that you uh, are careful or you think carefully about how much you want to go down that road mm. and at least explore the possibility with your doctor of mm. doing something else before you probably so embark say, on it. Let's say that I was just diagnosed with diabetes type 2 and I came to you and yep. you were a GP. What would you have told me if I said, um, what can I do myself? Okay, Is there so anything I could do myself? What what I would tell you now or what I would have told you 10 years ago? Now. Okay, so what I'd say now is, look, there is actually some very good evidence that if you do significant weight loss, we will be able to reverse your condition. The more you, weight you lose, uh, the more likely it is to have an impact, uh, that it will be quite challenging. Uh, but rapid weight loss is the way to go. And that certainly, here's some studies if you want to look at them. Here's a recipe book if you want to try it. Uh, that's what my wife does. She gives them copies, her patients copies of the book, and she says, give it a go if you want. Uh, I will, um, if they're on medication, then, or if I'm on medication, then I have to kind of discuss it with my GP because two things will happen very fast on a rapid weight loss diet. One is your blood sugars will come down very fast, and the other is your blood pressure will come down very fast. So if you're on medication to treat those two conditions, you need to come off. So what Taylor did mm -hmm. is he took everyone off everything mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. he started the trial. Wow. Because he said the danger is actually you're going to overdo it. Mm -hmm. You're going to be over-medicated mm -hmm. for your condition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, your blood pressure doesn't need to be treated. You, and you're, fortunately, most of the diabetes drugs are not likely to produce a hypo. But I've seen people on massive doses of insulin mm -hmm. who have come off everything. Wow. Mm -hmm. Now, you wouldn't do it straight away and you'd do it carefully, obviously, because insulin is... But I saw a woman um, and she was in her 30s, desperate to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And she did it. And she lost a lot of weight. And uh, she basically, she had a thing called PCOS, which is common in women. Yeah. Polycystic ovary syndrome. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, rapid weight loss is a very good way of reversing PCOS, probably the only way. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, she got pregnant and had twins um, soon afterwards. So she wrote me a nice little letter saying thank you mm. uh, for my two lovely girls. Oh. And since then, she's had another two twins. I'm not sure she... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> she probably had uh, more <laughs> than she, you get more, a letter. Uh, <laughs> you should have more than she was hoping for, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, talking about uh, children, what advice would you give to parents who want to give their children uh, a good start for a healthy life, for a long, healthy life? I think you need to start as soon as possible. And if you can, then obviously you start by breastfeeding because there is a lot of evidence that breast milk, human breast milk, is very good for your gut bacteria, for laying down a good platform mm -hmm. there for later in life. I would introduce them to a wide range of foods sooner rather than later because mm -hmm. that will set the taste buds. Until the age of about eight or nine, you have control over what they eat. Mm 
Mm. After that, you have no control because they will go off and do whatever crazy thing they want to do. But you can lay down the rules and the ground rules. Mm. So we were quite strict with our kids. We didn't really offer them much in the way of snacks or we gave them things like nuts for snacks. Uh, we didn't allow them to drink have any fizzy drinks. They used to complain like crazy when we'd go out for meals with their cousins who all had fizzy drinks. Mm. And we would say, sorry, it's tap water for you. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they had, when they were teenagers, they went off and ate a loaded pile of junk. But now they're in their 20s, they've all returned mm. to a kind of healthy way of eating, which I guess they've learned from us. So mm, I don't think you should uh, be doing dieting with children, certainly under the age of 16 or 17. Um, I wouldn't um, advocate any form of intermittent fasting or things like that but I would just cut down the snacks mm. allow them to go longer periods without food getting hungry is fine three meals a day is fine you don't need yeah. to have three meals a day plus snacks really you don't and so we get, should get rid of the snack culture oh 100% that's mm -hmm. what's been driving more than anything else has been driving the obesity you don't need to eat mm. like six times a day you absolutely 100% no. don't and they you know once upon a time that's what happened Kids, mm. basically, they had breakfast, they went out for a you know, they played, they came back, they had lunch, they played, they came back, they had evening meal, and then they went to bed. Mm. And then uh, they were actually hungry when they Exactly, and then they ate stuff. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully, if they're hungry, they're more likely to eat the healthy stuff. Sure. Mm. So, again, a sort of Mediterranean, Nordic-style diet, you know, give them the same food you're having. Uh, as long as it's not pizza or whatever you're having. <laughs> uh, so that's broadly, you know, uh, what I would recommend. And I think that, the, as I said, it's the stuff you do with them before the age of eight to ten that really matters. That mm. will influence their microbiome, but it will also mm. influence their habits. Yeah. We were talking a bit about the difficulty talking about overweight and obesity. And when it comes to children, it's almost like a taboo to yeah. talk about this. Uh, yet we see that uh, so many children are overweight and um, and uh, suffering from obesity. And we know that this will uh, decrease their uh, life quality Indeed. a lot. Yeah, and also make them unhappy and depressed. Yeah, yes. And... Um, It's like many people are afraid of giving their children anorexia. Yes, anorexia. Indeed, yeah. But uh, the statistics show that the risk for this generation to uh, to die from having too much to eat is uh, it's a hundred times bigger. So how can we start to de-dramatize, dramatize, mm. de-dramatize? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think um, this question and teach our children not to eat because when when you were young, I guess you were taught to eat up. Because yes. there was yes. lack of food, and uh, and yeah. nowadays there is food everywhere. So we should tell our children to don't eat to, too you much. You give them smaller portions, and then if they're hungry, you give them more. So you start with smaller amounts, and then you expand it rather than the other way around. Because mm -hmm. if you give them a big plate full of stuff, uh, and also one of the things we know is it takes about you know forty five minutes from the moment you eat the food to get down to the cells in your mm. gut, which release a hormone which tells you you are full. Mm. So if you eat fast. Uh, then you will eat more. Mm. But if you eat a smaller plate mm. and then you wait for a bit and mm. see if you're genuinely hungry, mm. uh, probably you won't be. And mm. we know that it's much better to do that than to give them a big pile of food to start with. Mm. It is really, really difficult. I mean, one of the things I would say is that doctors probably have a responsibility to kind of weigh and measure kids mm. and that may well be the best way in schools as well that's kind of one of the places they can go and i guess it's tricky because how do you tell parents that their children are significantly overweight or obese mm. because many don't see it mm. it's become hugely normalized mm. and so but as a society we have to grasp 
and grapple and you know understand that this is important mm. uh, clearly if you if kids are humiliated if they're told you're a little fat kid you know uh, other kids will do it anyway mm. uh, because kids are cruel mm. uh, but you have to find a way um, to get across to the parents they don't have to say to the kids you know hey mm. your school says you're fat mm. but somehow or other somehow the parents have to grasp that it matters that mm. this is outside the norm that it is not good and here are some steps that could help. Mm. Now, Amsterdam is one of the few places on earth where they have managed to reverse um, childhood obesity, particularly yeah, in the hard-to-reach right. communities, mm. immigrant communities, and they did that by a whole series of measures. One of them was by banning all uh, fizzy drinks from schools and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also banned all advertising for junk food mm-hmm. uh, from sporting events around children. Uh, they also persuaded the fast food outlets like McDonald's. They're not allowed to sell um, fast food to kids under the age of 16 Wow! Uh, within wow. a really perimeter of several that. miles of the school. And the other thing they did is they sent people out into community mm-hmm. uh, to help um, parents understand um, how to change the food they're giving them. Mm-hmm. So a combination of all these things, which are not expensive, mm-hmm. um, has had a profound effect. And as I said, it's the only place on earth I've come across or that where they've actually managed to do it. Uh, I read that the mayor of London banned uh, banned commercial for uh, uh, junk food yes. to children. Mm. Absolutely, that, that's also a good start. That's absolutely a good place to start. Yeah. You, you need to do all these things. It's mm. like smoking. Mm. Uh, you talked about smoking earlier. It was a combination of lots of things that did it, and it took about forty years yeah. mm. uh, because the first evidence that smoking was bad for us came in the fifties and early sixties, uh, and then you had to have bans, which took a long time. Then you had high taxes again those came along mm. we also made it um, packaging uh, and then there was uh, you know making it much harder for people to smoke mm. so it was a combination of all those things yeah. which was necessary and so i think we need to do the same thing mm. because we know that the junk food industry are doing exactly what the tobacco industry did. They're basically manufacturing things which are highly addictive. Mm. They are creating all sorts of strange and dodgy institutions which um, do lots of spurious science showing that it's fine to eat sugar, it's fine to do this. Uh, Companies like Coca-Cola, they sponsor sporting events because they want to say, hey, it's not your diet that's a problem. Mm. It's the fact that you're not doing enough exercise. Mm. Now, exercise is great for many things. It's not a great way to lose weight. Mm. So uh, we have to basically approach it exactly the same way we approach tobacco. Mm. This is an evil. It is a societal evil. It has terrible consequences. It is not just free will. Mm. So the fact that people smoke, you know, once upon a time, it's just free will. You should mm. allow people to smoke if they want to I'm smoke. I'm an ex-smoker uh, well, 20 years ago. It's so. tough. Mm. I'm giving it up. It's bloody mm. tough. But it's probably one of the best things you could ever do mm. uh, to, you know, but it's not just things like, um, you know, risks of cancer, but it's also heart disease and also dementia and things like that. Mm. It's all the other horrible things. Mm. The people in their 50s and 60s who are heavy smokers, I see a lot of them when I was working in hospitals. Mm-hmm. They just lead utterly miserable lives. Mm. So it's not how long you live, but it's how long you live healthily. Yes. And if you're going to be just coughing your guts out for the last 20 years of your life, no. there's not a great way no, to go. No, no. Um, so I think that's what we need to do. We need to address this thing on multiple levels. Mm. And I think, for example, the sugar tax was a kind of great first step, but it's mm. only a first step. Mm. We don't have that yet. No. So we will uh, meet with the minister responsible for public health in Sweden. And uh, if you would give one advice to her, mm-hmm on how to uh, work for improve the public health in Sweden, what would you give 
I would suggest she finds ways to talk to the medical schools to incorporate more education in the training of medical students about what is good and bad nutrition, Mm. uh, that she finds ways to help with that. Mm. I think that is without doubt one way if you inform the doctors and it kind of gets out there and gets to the patient. Alternatively, I would um, ask her to look at some of the evidence around the sugar tax and things like that in the countries where we started those are the things that she has some control over. Just doing more advertisements, more things, telling people that they should eat better and isn't going to work. Mm. That's what governments like doing because mm. it's not expensive and it's not effective, mm. but it looks as though you're doing something. Education, mm. education. Mm. But the reality is just telling people that smoking is bad for them had almost no impact. Mm. It was not enough. The financial incitements are uh, greater power. Absolutely. Like uh, uh, taking away the VAT on uh, on good uh, vegetables and fruit. Brilliant. Absolutely. So if you can change the financial incentives, that would be great. Mm. Um, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try our best. Thank you so much. Uh, and um, everyone that wants to, uh, I mean, everyone with the diabetes type 2 or even uh, being in the risk zone of um, like pre-diabetes or obesity, should check out your website Absolutely. and the program. Indeed. I mean, it's it's very cheap, I think, for what you offer. Thank you. Yes, it's, uh, it's the best investment you, uh, you can you can do Brilliant. in your health. Thank you. You have listened to the Food Pharmacy Show with Lina Natby and Mia Klase, joined by special guest Dr. Michael Mosley. Links to the studies he mentioned in the interview can be found on thefast800.com. The podcast is edited by me, Sebastian Ring, and I've also composed all the music. For more Food Pharmacy content, visit foodpharmacyco.com and follow us on Instagram, food underscore pharmacy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.